Welcome to Genomics Kapshap. Genomics Kapshap is an initiative by Map My Genome to create a community around genomics and to simplify genomics for everyone. I'm Anu Acharya, your host for this exciting Kapshap. We are creating this community by bringing together experts from allied areas like science, medicine, genetic counseling, nutrition, fitness, and more. Please join us as we spread this exciting world of, of genomics to you. We are now available on your favorite podcast as well. Please search for Genomics Kapshap on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google Podcasts. So today we have a very special guest. And so for our 47th episode, we have Dr. B.K. Thelma, who I truly admire and I've known for a long time. Dr. Thelma is a highly accomplished human geneticist and researcher, and her work has made significant contributions to the world of genetic disease genetics as well as genomics. She's a pioneer in the field of personalized medicine in India and is a professor and currently the national science chair in the Department of Genetics at the University of Delhi South Campus. She was also the principal investigator and coordinator of the Center of Excellence on Genome Sciences and Predictive Medicine funded by the government of India. And she has several national and international collaborative projects and over 110 peer-reviewed publications to her credit. She's a fellow of all three science academies in India, and she also served as a member of the Scientific Advisory Council to the Prime Minister of India, National Science and Engineering Research Board and Human Genetics, Medical Genomics Task Forces, committees of co-funding agencies, including the Department of Biotechnology and the ICMR and SERB Government of India. She has also served as a commissioner representing India in the International Commission on the Clinical Use of Human Germline Genome Testing. There are many more um, great things that Dr. Thelma has done, but we will let her speak about that to us during part of this conversation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Thelma. And it's such an honor and delight to have you. Thank you very much, Anu. I'm really happy to be here because you know, I've had great admiration for you because I just thought it's so much courage to get into this thing of, you know, commercial aspect of personalized medicine rather than just doing research. So, you know, I really admire the courage and the way you have grown since your time at Osimum and then with Map My Genome. So thank you for having me here. And I hope, you know, we just have a good chat. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Thelma. It's, it's, it's uh, researchers like you on whom we depend to, to do what we do today in, in Osimum as well as in MacMy Genome. And hopefully we've been able to contribute now a lot of back to the research community as well with some of the work that we've been doing. Absolutely. So, so Dr. Thelma, let's, uh, you know, I want to start off when, um, when, you, were, when you were little. Um, genetics was not something that was, you know, was cool that was that people knew about that uh, you know how did you get started i mean uh, you are probably you know one of the first geneticists out of india uh, how did you get started in this uh, in this journey you know who who inspired you and and maybe you know when then it wasn't that obvious to everybody else yeah okay um, you know I can go on and on, but you'll have to kind of, you know, in the interest of time, I'll keep it brief. And A, of course, I'm not the first uh, geneticist because we have had, you know, people. Why like, no? <laughs> no. 
you know, people like Professor Archana Sharma of Calcutta University, for example, a plant genetic person, like we have had people anyway. So, um, you know, when we were young, uh, there were very limited options, unlike in today's context. So maximum was that either you would become a doctor or a, you know, an engineer or a lawyer, or maybe you would go into administrative service or banking. That's, you know, broadly that used to be the kind of the stuff. So when I was young, I always wanted to be a medical doctor. So uh, I finished school at 13, which meant I couldn't get into the medical school because you had to be 16 years of age at that time in Bangalore, Karnataka, that was the rule. And there was no way but to go into a BSc. And after a BSc, everybody dissuaded me to go back to the medical school because they said, oh, you know, you've already spent three years. Why do you want to do another five years plus, etc.?" You do your master's and then go on. So the science stream was fixed. The medical, you know, the desire to serve people in whatever capacity. And that point of time, yes, you know, medical doctors were gods. They're still gods to me. Okay. So I just said, okay, that's, that's the way to go. So I did a BSc and then did a master's. And there again, we never had master's in genetics, nor master's in biotechnology, etc. So it was conventional subjects zoology all the way because that was the nearest mm -hmm. so after my master's in zoology luckily or you know i mean i wanted physiology my teachers pushed me into uh, cell biology and genetics in the special class which was really very very good at that time i revolted but then when i came to do my phd i was very clear that i only wanted to work on some aspect of medical genetics so I moved from Bangalore to Delhi with the sole aim that, you know, I need to get into a place where there's some genetics being done. Mm -hmm. So I managed to get a PhD admission in Delhi University, again, zoology department. And there was one person who was doing cytogenetics, and that is Professor Rao, who ultimately turned out to be my mentor. And when I told him, look, I want to do work on humans, you know, any aspect of genetics. He said, Thelma, I sincerely advise that don't get into that at this point because A, medical genetics or, you know, research in medical area are not really like so uh, well established and may be very difficult. Even MD students from Maulana's Medical College coming to do a dissertation in my lab can't get their own samples. So he said, I suggest you learn your cytogenetics because Molecular genetics were non-existent. And the cytogenetics, which was there. They said, you do your cytogenetics in an animal model. And then when you go for a postdoc and thereafter, you have a choice. So that was really the path which I had that desire to be in the medical realm. But the way, instead of serving the you know, patients directly, I just got into the research aspect of it. So I'm quite happy that, you know, at the end of the day, I got to doing what I got to do what I wanted to. So that's a, in brief the journey that I had to get into genetics. That's amazing. But you, you said something like you, you graduated from high school at 13. Yeah. Uh, so you must have been always the youngest in your class in, in everything, right? How, how was it? Was that a difficult thing to do? Or? No, no, no. It wasn't difficult at all because A, you know, we had a school next door. So, and therefore, because we had, you know, we had the ability to talk, we whatever, whatever. 
So they just sent us to school. At that time, there was no age restriction that you had to five years, 10 months or something like that, which is there now. So we just moved on and, you know, I finished. So luckily, I mean, now that you're asking, now that I want to get both, I probably was by and large the topper in the class, along with my cousin, who's just 15 days younger, older to me. So we kind of stayed, uh, you know, among the top two or three. And when I passed out from school, I was the only one who got a first class. Those days, first class was a big thing, right? And we had different branches, like, you know, you had the special subjects and social sciences. So in all the four four domains, I was the only one who got the first class. So I'm very happy. (laughs) So... So it never really, I, I guess, you know, now there are lots of times when, you know, when when the par- when you are a parent that they tell you that make sure that your child is not uh, too young and all that, they won't be able to cope. I guess they can look at examples like yours. And, and I think, you know, things are very different now. But of course, you know, we had, I think more important was that there was probably that limited learning, but that limited learning with support from home meant a lot. So, and if you know education is really your, you know, education is very important and that's really your ultimate, you know, aim to be educated, not just literate. I think, you know, family support comes that way. So, you know, just move on that way. So at that point, there were not uh, that many distractions. Like even when I was growing, like growing up, there weren't that many distractions, right? But uh, what did you find exciting? Like what, other than, of course, you were the topper in your class, but were there anything else like that got you interested, like books or something that drove you to this, this field of, you know, in our time, as I said, we didn't really have excellent libraries where they were actually keeping science books or biographies or autobiographies. So we had not heard of Barbara McClintock's or anybody. I mean, we really did not know anything at all. So by way of books, we really had very little. So it was only later, I must say that it was only during master's, very little even in undergrad, but I think it's only in master's that we got a little bit of exposure to things. And then, of course, PhD, which made a difference. So by way of books or anything, we were really not there. We didn't really have that kind of an exposure, nor an opportunity to get there. You're you're truly sharply focused on on doing what you were doing at that point then. In fact, you know, I mean, my father wanted me to either do mathematics or do an IAS. So they said, oh, science, you know, you'll study so many years and this thing. But of course, they would let us have our, you know, pursue whatever we wanted. But he was kind of uh, very keen that I did one of these things. So a lot of times we do future gazing, right? We try to figure out, you know, what will happen in five years, 10 years. So when you were were doing your maybe master's, where did you think we would be in in, in 2023? Okay. Um, You know, um, at the Central College in Bangalore, that's where I studied. We had very good, excellent teachers. Okay. One of them particularly was somebody called Dr. Radha, who was a physiologist, animal physiologist but who at that point in time was always having several international collaborations. And she kind of really enthused students to kind of, you know, read more, read whatever, lay your hands on whatever is possible and get going, etc. So definitely we did not think that, you know, uh, where we have reached today was something which is unimaginable because A, we didn't learn genetics that way. 
the least that we had was very little of genetics and that was typical Mendelian genetics which was taught to us. So to answer your question, I don't think we would have ever imagined. It was only the 1970s when things just changed. And that was also the time that I joined my PhD. 76 is when I started my PhD. And that's when really all of the recombinant DNA technologies kick-started and you had the revolutionary genetic engineering, which came in a big way. So I think from then on, it was like a way forward. And I'm very happy that we witnessed every stage of the growth of the science as well as the technology all through in genetics so but that was only i must say from 90 mid, mid 70s nothing before that so no no exposure no thoughts no imaginations you know it's a little bit hard because you look like you're 40 years old and and then and you're saying that in your 670s, I'm just I'm just saying, you know, you do look very young, right? So it's a little bit hard to to sort of say, you know, in your 70s when you did your uh, PhD. But but it's it's a it's a fascinating thing. And and one of the things about your journey has been quite diverse, right? Like you you've done a lot of work on many different areas. Like you've you've worked on a lot on on uh, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, and others. But you've also done work on Ayurveda. You've also done work on newborn, um, you know, er, uh, er, inborn errors of metabolism and so on. So when you look at your journey, where did you see, uh, where did you start with and, and uh, what is your most interesting area of uh, research that you've seen? I'm sure that all of them are exciting, but I'm sure there's something that probably keeps you much more excited than the others. I'll come to the last part of the question last, but I'll tell you how the journey happened. You know, I just told you a little earlier that I worked on an animal model and which had a beautiful X and Y chromosome, which would get broken at very specific places. Okay. And we used to call them as the fragile sites. And this animal had five different kinds of X chromosome. Okay. And all because of break only in the repetitive regions. Okay, but I could just kind of you not know, see that the largest chromosome and then the smallest one. And similarly in white chromosome. And we were so intrigued and it was influencing, um, uh, you know, reproduction. It was influencing a whole lot of things. And the best thing which happened was while I had almost finished my PhD, there was a younger uh, colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Rita. She was at that point in time still trying to figure out the molecular basis for the fragile site. And at that was the time when um, a Sutherland came with the folate sensitive medium, which would capture the fragile sites in the fragile X syndrome. Okay. So we cultured those cells and we actually saw in the folate deficient medium, these sites were again getting from a normal cell culture, we could actually generate this. So they were folate sensitive fragile sites. And characterization, I did that characterization for many years, but at that time, we really didn't have the technology. I even went to um, Germany to do micro dissection of those regions mm -hmm. to do the cloning, and we saw transposable elements. But then just to tell you why the story got shot is, we had a paper, we then communicated to Nature Genetics, and they just sent us um, a comment to show that the transposable elements were not actually episomes, but very integrated. Unfortunately, the PhD student who had done the work chose to go for his postdoc, and that work never got repeated because I had moved on by then 
with the human trigenics. Okay, so the starting was the animal model with trigenics. So when I finished my postdoc and came and I restarted the uh, characterization, 1991, we had uh, Fregilex FMR1 gene, which was identified. And um, I was one of the first two to get the probe from Benustra in the Netherlands. Professor I.C. Barma was the other one. And being at the university, we quickly developed that into a full-fledged genetic testing using southern blocks. Okay, because those days it was southern blocks. And um, that was the transformation for me to come full cycle back to working on humans. So the fragile X in animal model got me getting the probe to getting me to the human fragile X. So my first project was fragile X syndrome, which was testings where clinicians were so supportive. My clinician collaborator, Professor Meena Gupta, would actually go with me to schools, on special schools on Saturdays, try to identify children who are supposed to have the typical characteristics of fragile X children, okay? And that was the way we picked up. And you will not believe, Anu, the first child we picked up based on the symptoms or what was said were the features of a fragile X child actually turned out positive. So you can imagine the thrill that we had in the lab when the child had that amplification. And then it was history, like, you know, no looking back because one family to another family. So the number of prenatal diagnosis that we did for all the clinical collaborators and all of the science that we did for the tragedics itself, looking at you know, the repeat number across population. So when I got this project, so I'll, I'll kind of tell you very briefly because you said I've done a lot of things. So I want to tell you the way it, the projects just one open to the other. So when I was doing the Fragile X project, that was the first project, you know, that was uh, the second project was the first one was an animal, but the first project from DBT was for the Fragile X. But they insisted that I uh, get a genetic counselor or, you know, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist was not really the thing, but they said somebody to counsel. It's very important to have that on board. So I started looking for someone who can be there. And I heard about Professor Smita Deshpande, who was then in the Department of Psychiatry at Dr. RML Hospital. And when I went to her, she gladly agreed to be on this project as a genetic counselor for, you know, whatever uh, requirements. But she said, we are desperately looking for a geneticist to do schizophrenia genetics. Right. So that was the link, okay? Then schizophrenia genetics started. With, so that was very, that was the first a complex trait that I touched. The minute we started on schizophrenia, we realized this is largely to do with the dopaminergic pathway because all the antipsychotics are targeting the dopamine receptors largely. Hmm. So we said we need to look at another disease, which is depletion of dopamine. That's how we started with Parkinson's. Okay, where it is dopaminergic neuronal cell that leading to dopaminergic dopamine loss. And what you do is supplement dopamine supplement patients with dopamine and here you're blocking dopamine so we thought we will be able to capture two sides of the picture very well okay although one was an adolescent age onset other one was a late age onset but if we were looking at that point in time which was only through candidate genes all that we needed to do was to look at multiple pathways candidate genes and one odd snip from a gene you know not multiple snips because that was what we had in our kitty at that point. But I was just lucky 
they just had the right collaboration. The schizophrenia project brought along an international collaborator from the Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic, Professor Nimbronka. So we started off with a Fobati grant. So, you know, I, I must say I had a large bit of luck along with excellent collaborators to kind of move forward. So schizophrenia and Parkinson's being done. And, you know, the other important thing which you must, uh, I must share with you is when you are in a university setup, you have PhD students who are your workforce, not postdocs that you give them different pieces of the puzzle and then ask them to put it together. Here, it's a PhD, you know, a individual project, which has to be driven by a PhD student or which is solely the PhD students work. So to avoid difficulties or to avoid any kind of conflict between students, you always gave them separate projects. So there was no overlap. Everybody was happy because everybody was coming with something new and there wouldn't be an argument or a fight when it came to publications, etc. So this is this is like another thing which happened. So we had students who were looking at, you know, schizophrenia. Then obviously schizophrenia came with its baggage of uh, adverse drug reactions by way of tardive dyskinesia. That's what opened the complete uh, avenue for pharmacogenetics because you had specific individuals who developed tardive dyskinesia, others who didn't develop, etc. So that was one part. And then Parkinson's got us to doing, you know, and we realized that they weren't very similar things or replication or the, you know, contrary findings there. But today I know that's because we didn't have the enough, you know, right enough uh, depth of uh, looking at genes, multiple SNPs, genome-wide, etc. So that went on. So this took us till about, uh, you know, 2000. At that point in time, you had the Human Genome Project out and all of the SNP information became possible. So what we did was to put schizophrenia and Parkinson's as a major project and we got a huge funding in 2000 from DBT for doing the SNP analysis across these two conditions because we had multiple ways that you could do. And then uh, while we were there, we got you know lots of publications. All of what could happen with candidate genes, genome-wide association came five years down the line. We had our cohorts ready and we could just jump to do genome-wide association. I didn't have to start from the scratch. We had already our cohorts in place, but then we were very ambitious. We thought like the first paper in GWAS, they looked at seven different diseases. So we put five different diseases in our GWAS. We put schizophrenia and Parkinson surely. Then we had excellent collaborators by then who were already talking to us because of pharmacogenetics in rheumatoid arthritis with methotrexate, responder and non-responder. Then we had inflammatory bubble disorders. There again, you know, major things with ulcerative colitis and uh, Crohn's disease. They were all students working in this. And a group was very interested in cardiovascular diseases from uh, Jaipur. So we put these five conditions. And when we went for this major project at uh, DBT for the GWAS, they just told us that, you know, that's not going to work with five. They will not give us funding. Choose two. And the committee, the committee, you know, the subcommittee insisted that we stick to schizophrenia and Parkinson's. And that was the only time I really put my foot down and I said, no, you tell me to cut to two, but the choice of two is ours, you know, the teams. You are and the scientists, yeah. <laughs> because I knew 
by then we would have very little if we went with jivas of schizophrenia so heterogeneous okay with even the diagnosis being so questionable at times uh, same thing with parkinson's you would have we had in our country we have a lot of young onset okay and we also have late, late onset so we felt it was much better to go with the rheumatoid arthritis and the ibd because both of them had a common component again inflammatory and we thought we will have better results so we chose sadly we had to drop the other three and we moved on with rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bubble disorders okay so that is how the complex traits kind of worked but all along the line i've just nurtured this deep interest to translate my fragile x which was continuing which was like so satisfying because right from 1993 we started giving service but of course not paid service we had a project every clinician from across the country would send us samples and we would give them the results so i had this real keen you know, really wanting to get to inborn errors of metabolism because we knew about inborn errors of metabolism we knew that you did not need to have information on the mutation in the gene neither did you have to know the gene all that you were looking at is altered metabolic profiles right so if we could do that at least the babies who are screened and where there is intervention or you know therapy possible treatment available you could help them for the ones where there is no treatment we could at least use the dna look for the mutation and help the family for the next pregnancy and maybe for 10 years or 12 years i mean it just pursues this very very vigorously with multiple funding agencies nothing happened you know everybody would just push the ball from this to that it just didn't happen at all so that is when while complex trait research went on we had the center of excellence i got two phases of it the first one was for discovery where needless to say we identified novel susceptibility genes both for rheumatoid arthritis and ulcerative colitis and uh, the second phase they told us to again cut down to only one disease so we stuck to rheumatoid arthritis where we had one very promising gene which we have now taken up to the drug level we have finished the animal experiments and patent spending and of course ulcerative colitis continues to be taken up i've just given most of the projects wherever i've had a student who's promising and who's had a job i've just given them the project so they're kind of continuing with that so the story with rheumatoid arthritis jiva's discovery to translation worked very well it was during this somewhere during this point in when i became the member of the scientific advisory council to the prime minister that's when you know science for society it was a year of the science for society and you know they asked on the table what it should do so i said we should do something you know uh, we should do science research so they said okay come back with a proposal so you know that i was that was the the moment the opportunity for me so i went back with this project for inborn errors of metabolism so the committee with i think 20 20 25 people they were like absolutely i mean they realized how important it is how doable it is okay and that we don't have anything in the country so immediately the chair said they told the dbt secretary and the icmr secretary to kind of talk to me but two months down the line nothing happened and then it was professor ramaswamy who actually came from dst and he said that i will do this feasibility study support and we picked up 
we picked up Bihar and because they said, doing in Delhi is no big deal. You should take something which is, you know, difficult terrain. So we said, okay, we'll do Bihar and we will do Delhi. The second time when we went for discussion, then he said, why do you want to kill yourself? And then he just asked me to just drop the, you know, Bihar part of it and just show feasibility in Delhi. So then with Professor Seema Kapoor from Maulana Azad Medical College and 20 other hospitals across Delhi State, we got this beautiful opportunity to do newborn screening. But we were very clear, we will only do it on a public-private partnership mode. Okay, so in which year was that? The, the, yeah, we started this in 2008. No, 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 2014. 2008 was our genomics. 2014 is when we started. So 2014 to 18, I did that because it took us a year after, I think my term was till 2012 with sac 2 pm So soon after that, by that time we got funding, but to kickstart, you know, to organize everything, to get all the ethical committee clearances for the 20 hospitals and all, it took us a while. So that's when we actually started. So my complex trait research, my discovery genomics, were all the familial forms of fascinating intellectual disability, Parkinson's disease, etc., went on. This was a separate project, and we were very happy that we had a public-private partnership mode because you know both of us being full-time doctor, she being a doctor, Kapoor being a doctor, and me being a you know full-fledged faculty, we couldn't have done the logistics. So that's when we had Lab India come in as our private partner and they arranged all the logistics and we were able to screen a 200,000 babies in about 18 months. Okay. And which, which I think was so sad, which has been very, very satisfying, but it hasn't reached where it should reach in terms of, um, you know, translation or a policy. It should be a data to policy kind of a stuff. It hasn't yet happened, but I'm very hopeful that it should happen. So that is, in you know, very briefly how different things happened uh, for um, uh, for inborn errors of metabolism. Then, of course, uh, we did that in um, all the hospitals. We finished all the screening. We got the epidemiological data. We got the mutation data. We had cutoff values which could be established because everything otherwise was being taken from Caucasian data right from Caucasian clinics. But here you could actually have all of these which were kind of worked out based on 200,000. And we made sure all of Delhi was covered, which meant central and all parts, which covered largely, and Delhi being what it is, it you know covers a whole gamut of uh, you know ethnicities. So it was a very, very, very nice and a very satisfying thing. So now to come back to the IR genomics part, so while we were working on complex traits, we realized no matter what we do, because we had already witnessed candidate gene era, we had witnessed the genome-wide association era, where people said, oh, genome-wide association will give us all the answers, okay? And then it had also stepped on to whole exome sequencing, okay? And we knew there were no, we know that there are no answers, yet for a prediction, 100%, for any complex state, be it diabetes or be it the other end of the spectrum, okay? So we just, I mean, always it bothered me too much that we have no way of addressing the heterogeneity. And that's when in 2008, along with the uh, Ayurveda physician, Dr. Bhima Bhatt at Holy Family Hospital. Imagine Holy Family Hospital, which is otherwise allopathic, they had a full-fledged Ayurveda department. And he was a fantastic collaborator too. So. We, he put together a project for uh, Ministry of Ayush in 2008. And 
what we said was we were not by that time two groups were already in the country we're doing um, Ayurveda genomics but we but said IGIB was one of them IGIB was one of them incidentally started around the same time so when Vitali came around to collect samples you know so I laughed so she said Thelma why are you laughing are you also doing I said yes <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happened and then there was Dr. Bhushan Patwardhan at Pune. He was actually the, he had started much, uh, maybe a couple of years before that. He was looking at HLA genes and Ayurveda. So when we put this project, we had decided we will not do the normal healthy individual stuff, but we will only focus on our disease cohorts. And that is how we focus on rheumatoid arthritis. He told us not to touch type 2 diabetes, the Ayurveda doctor, but he said, we'll only do rheumatoid arthritis because, you know, it's fairly, you get a large number of patients and it's good and clean, unlike very difficult to get numbers for subgroup or a homogeneous subset of the type 2 diabetes. So that's how we started that project. But then, of course, all the rest of it were heavily funded. My main line had to go on. So the IR genomics, we did publish a paper or two at that point, but a lot of base work kept happening but it's not until recently that we actually have restarted in a big way with iogenomics because now all my funding for the mainstream projects being over and i know that you have to address the clinical gen heterogeneity and the genetic heterogeneity and the only way to do that would be with the deep phenotyping principles with the ancient wisdom of ayurveda that is how IR genomics started many, many years ago in the lab. And students, two students I had offered, if they had taken up, we would have probably, you know, made a lot of headway. They said, ma'am, you know, new science, we don't want to take a chance. I said, all right. So I kind of waited. So now finally, you know, I have my other projects going. So my, uh, you know, discovery projects in schizophrenia and intellectual disability, they gave us new disease causal genes hitherto not published so that's all got into omim right so that was like so those had to be functionally characterized including in stem cells so all that stuff went on side by side but now with the national science chair my project is exclusively on iogenomics and again we look at uh, rheumatoid arthritis responders and non-responders so now you may appreciate the link on how one opened the door for another and another and another and all through this, the technology developed. So we moved on. The minute EVAS was done, we immediately jumped to whole exome sequencing. And that's where all the families that we had kept with us in the, uh, in the lab came back to use because we couldn't have done extensive linkage. We were not finding the genes. With whole exome sequencing and complete families, informative families, we were able to find uh, several novel disease causing genes for both intellectual disability and for parkinson's and of course schizophrenia is extremely interesting because we're families but a very difficult disease at the moment oligogenic very very difficult so we are still struggling with that what a fascinating journey i think from fragile x to schizophrenia parkinson's to uh, pharmacogenomics to uh, you know to rheumatoid arthritis and so on. So I think maybe if if, I, if you have to just basically say that, you know, uh, there's probably like we keep saying curiosity is in my DNA. I think that's probably you exemplify that because you've gone through 
ஒன்னு <laughs> student centric projects mm-hmm. so we had an opportunity in a way it's good because i could have probably gone in depth in one area and made a huge uh, you know uh, impact but the way we had to function and the best that i could do was to do this but you know we uh, luckily we moved with the technology so as i said you know from jivas we went on to whole exome sequencing the only thing which i have refrained now is to do whole genome whole genome sequencing because i think we don't need that information just now so that's the only thing which i've held myself back because with everything else including metagenome sequencing we are moved on as the technologies came and as the questions which we needed to address happened i think you've also if i remember correctly you've also done little bit and some research on the epigenetics or the microbiome microbiome yes but uh, you know we don't really publish too much a lot of interesting stuff is there with the microbiome because the interest here is right now the present project of national science chair has multi omics okay because endometrial arthritis or for that matter anything is you are what you eat so bottom line is your gut microbiome okay and you know that in the days when you eat bad you know what your mood is you know what your stomach is everything right <laughs> so i i i've actually i mean truly believe that and i also test for it so that i can check you know if it is actually true that you can measure it right yeah absolutely so i i just think for every one of these diseases especially for ibd syndromatoid arthritis for certain that you know the microbiome plays a big role for single gene disorders it's a very different ball game okay so we're not really bothered about that component so much while for primary autism i would still worry about the microbiome and i would target the microbiome as probably an intervention but for primary autism but not for other things okay so single gene disorders kept apart i think for the rest of them it's big time so for for the average person right like you've used words like uh, genome wide association studies you've also used um, you know different let's say like a fragile x and and other things so if you can just explain to an average person what is like when we say gvas studies or genome wide association study what act- how do you actually create that set of people because you said you followed that cohort over many years okay yeah sorry i should have spoken simple language okay so when we talk about a genome wide association studies basically it is a case group and a control group and that put together i'm calling it as a cohort study cohort so when i say cases they are cases let's say for example cases suffer patients suffering from rheumatoid arthritis the controls are age and gender matched healthy individuals they can be for example husbands or wives of the affected because genetically they are different but they eat the same food live in the same environment and therefore a great control but very often we don't get a spouse control we are picking up controls from the general population 
And when you're working with collaborators at the clinic, I mean clinical collaborators, you know that the patient population is there and you can also make this extra effort to collect the healthy cohort. So when we talk about cases, when we talk about a case control study, this is how my samples are obtained. Now, when I say genome-wide association, I say, don't worry about any of these fancy terms. You need to have markers for you to reach a region of interest which you think is disease causal. The way I would explain to a common man is, it is like a postal address. Mm. Okay? If I just said Thelma, Delhi doesn't mean anything. Thelma, India doesn't, it's even worse. But the minute I add a few more details, and I say Delhi University, kind of almost there and so on, right? So we need markers to reach the sites in the genetic makeup, which could be contributing to disease. The Human Genome Project gave us a lot of these landmarks or, you know, handles by way of a capital A or a small A. Okay, just in me, it could be a capital A at a given location. In you, it could be a small A at a given location. And that could be from one parent. The second parent also, it could be the same. So if I have a thousand markers across a genome or a hundred thousand markers to be more precise, I have a chance to study the pattern of the capital A, small A across the, my patients and my controls. And then all that I will say is, if I make a hypothesis, I first have to assume something before I start. So I make a hypothesis and say, small a is seen more often in the disease group compared to the capital A. Okay. And all that I will do with my 100,000 data points is to see how often this change. I'm saying capital A, small a for a common man. But... Really speaking, we are talking about a G2A or a T2C or the other way around. So I will see how often am I seeing small a versus capital A in the case group and control group and apply a very simple statistical test and show that it is significantly different. So it is experimental, but analysis is purely statistical. Okay, it is not biology, it's not functional. It is just a statistical test. So the larger the number, the better it is for you to do. But even having had large numbers, we know that, again, for the common man, if you talk about a patient, and if I say, you know, capital A, small a, I will give a statistical test, and it will tell me small a is, yes, indeed associated. For marker one, it is associated, seen more often in cases. Marker two, there is no difference between the case and the control group. Marker three, maybe a difference and so on. So that can just go on. But what was important is that when you're looking at um, the case control group and when you're doing these kind of tests, A, you're not going to find a direct link to the marker. These are all unrelated cases and unrelated controls. So your numbers are large, but you may not get the thing because Rheumatoid arthritis, for example, somebody will have, I'm just telling you, what do I mean by the word heterogeneity? I use the word heterogeneity. That was going to be my next question. So, yeah. so if a rheumatoid arthritis patient, patient one, 
he'll say, you know, I have swelling, but I have no pain. Somebody says, I have very severe pain, okay? And I can't just kind of move my fingers. The third one will say, look, I can't get up in the morning, but then once I'm up, then I'm kind of okay. So each one has a different set of symptoms. And that is what we mean by saying heterogeneity or differences in symptoms. This is as far as the clinical features or the phenotype, what you call is concerned. On the other hand, Similar things can happen with the genetics also. A condition like rheumatoid arthritis or type 2 diabetes is referred to as a complex trait. Unlike uh, sickle cell anemia or thalassemia, which is referred to as a single gene disease. One gene, one mutation, the disease will be there. Whereas in rheumatoid arthritis or type 2 diabetes or any of the complex traits, we don't know as of today how many genes contribute to the disease pattern. We don't know whether all of the genes are important in, to be present in that altered form in every individual who's labeled as a rheumatoid arthritis patient. It could be gene A, B, C, D, which is important in individual one. It could be X, Y, Z in individual two and so on. That is what you mean by genetic heterogeneity. Genes are many, but all the genes do not have to contribute to the disease in every individual. So that is what you mean by genetic heterogeneity, clinical heterogeneity. And when you talk about association study, coming back to the main question, I just told you that I've compared my A versus, case versus control group. Why am I calling it as a genome-wide? The number of markers, the number of these, you know, pointers that I picked up to reach the disease gene, I'm ensuring is something which is distributed right across the 3.2 billion base pairs. In other words, it may be one in every 5 KB that the company gave me on the chip that I'm using for my study. Or... A and B are always going together. I'm surely not going to pick A and B both. I will pick either A or B. So that is exploiting another phenomena in genetics, which is linkage disequilibrium. So I can pick up markers which are in LD versus LE. I make that combination there and say, I will only pick up markers, but I will make sure I'm not focusing only on one chromosome, or two chromosomes, but actually my markers are coming, the, you know, the pointers are coming from all of the 23 pairs of chromosomes. That is why I call it as genome-wide. And because I'm just doing a statistical to, a test to say, it's more often seen in the case group versus controls, it's just an association. So you call it as a genome-wide association study, which is in contrast to the first generation association study, which were just candidate gene association studies, where you picked up five genes based on the biology you know, or based on whatever information you have, and then look at markers from those genes and compare between case control. But it was a hypothesis testing approach where you had five genes because the biology was claiming, I mean, biology said that it was important. Whereas in the genome-wide association study, 
you have no hypothesis to start with. You are just doing all the 100,000 markers, doing a statistical test, and then trying to see what comes out with the result at the end. That's, that's I hope, answers or explains to the common. Absolutely. You know, Beautifully put. I think it is, you know, one, you start off with where you already know a little bit about the biology, a little bit about what they already are familiar with. The second one is you're looking at a big vast, you ca you cast a wide net and, and you find something that's common in, in, in all of them, right? Uh, since you've explained all this so beautifully, can I also ask you about polygenic risk score uh, okay. and, and how you would explain it to a fifth grader? Or... Okay, okay, polygenic. The minute you say polygenic risk score, I must bring in or explain the complex trait. When I say complex trait, many genes contributing to a disease, typically all of what we talk about, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, COPD, and so on. Now, please remember, every complex trait has an environmental component. No complex trait is exclusively a genetic one, okay? Everything has an environmental component. And the environmental component actually varies for each of the disease. Just to give you an example, for schizophrenia, if I looked at a, how do I decide how much is the environmental component and how much is the genetic component, okay? So best material to do that will be twin studies, okay? If I pick up monozygotic twins, twins who look alike, who have 100% gene shared, if it were a purely genetic disease, what would you expect? You will expect both the children to show the disease. Whereas if by chance there is another component, and at the moment we'll only call it as a non-genetic component, then maybe you will have a discordance or some twin pairs both will be affected. In other twin pairs, only one is going to be affected. Okay, and that's called as concordant and discordant. If these kind of studies have been done extensively for almost all of the complex traits. So if you take a disease like schizophrenia, we know 50% is genetic, 50% is environment. Okay. Second disease, which again I said, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, you know, these are very common these days, where the gut microbiome plays a major role. And you will not believe studies based on familial, you know, twins and epidemiological surveys have shown there is only 20% genetics in ulcerative colitis, 80% is environment. And today we also know that environment is large player is the gut microbiome, among other things. Crohn's disease, on the other hand, 40% genetics, with a very famous gene called NOD2 being the major player, and 60% is non-genetic. Okay, now I will explain to you the polygenic risk score. A, you know there are many genes involved. B, I have told you it's not just genes, but you also have other non-genetic factors. So the best way to a fifth grade student, and today's fifth grade, who's reading food labels, who's saying, you know, I, all, all kinds of things, right? Every 
food, at least biscuits, let's say, you say contains gluten. Everybody has heard of celiac disease. Okay, so for celiac disease, again, it is a complex disorder. Multiple genes are involved, but there are big time gene players and a bigger non-genetic player. The bigger non-genetic player there is the gluten, which if the person who has the bad genes is having or exposed to gluten is sure going to get celiac disease. But a person with all of the bad genes, but make sure that he's diagnosed with celiac disease, will never touch anything with gluten. He will protect himself from developing disease unless food is contaminated with actually gluten and then unknowingly you end up, etc. So when you do a polygenic risk score, you put all of these in place and say genetic risk is this much. Okay, oh no, environment. In this particular case, environment takes a bigger chunk. And then you say HLA genes, the most important. And I'm forgetting the second one. I should know because I've, we have worked on celiac disease. Okay, the second and the third gene. So you put all of them. So if I said approximately, if I said 60% risk, if the person has gluten, if he has got susceptibility genes. But what are the susceptibility genes? HLA, a particular, mm, particular right. kind of HLA or a particular allele of HLA adds another 20% risk. Then the third gene adds another 3% risk and a fourth gene. So we now, I mean, the best one, which I know is for celiac disease, where polygenic risk score is so commonly used in a clinical setup. So hopefully they understand what it means. So A, without knowing the genetic component, without knowing the non-genetic component, I'm afraid I will hesitate from doing a polygenic risk score. Using all of the fancy technologies, if I think I'm so sure that I know the genetic determinants of a, poly, of a complex trait, and I also know the genetic determinants or non-genetic determinants, I might be able to do that. So there are lots of efforts being done, but this is basically your primary information has got to be in place for you to be doing polygenic risk score. Everybody with all the data available in the database can make polygenic risk scores. But you have to keep at the back of your mind the word heterogeneity that we talked about. And so that brings you to your next question, and I'm sure of the individualized <laughs> medicine then, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think with you, I think we can probably have like a six-hour conversation and, and, and not... <laughs> we are already going to be an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, maybe I will, um, you know, we have, we have clearly, you know, talked a little bit about like the um, the PRS and other things. And one of the things I keep telling people is, you know, don't be afraid of finding out what your genetics is because it's not a like a destiny, right? In most cases, like in complex diseases, it's more about what you do rather than uh, rather than not. But clearly, there are some diseases like you were very beautifully pointing out that some of them are more heritable than the others, right? Like, you know, unfortunately or or not, I think some things are a little bit more heritable. But even in those cases, I think they can make a difference if they know and, and, and because ultimately I think knowledge is power, right? Absolutely. Now, 
you know, schizophrenia is probably like, I remember, I think the book Gene starts from there. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so many things start from there. But there is so much, uh, I think a lot of people still are confused about, you know, just about how how did you, and you started this long, long time ago. How do you find these people and, and were they done also on like healthy people that are um, trying to, you know, understand if these, you know, the genes that were identified, uh, you know, when you do a research study, uh, how did you identify, were they all from a hospital, psychiatric hospital, were they yeah. people who sign up for this or or how do research studies in general work? Okay, okay, I'll tell you. But before I go into that, I just want to tell you, you know, you talked about the word gene, but for a common man, gene probably is still a little higher. True, true. Uh, hand green, green is surely one of them. I never promised you a rose garden. A beautiful book. Okay, mm -hmm. the semi-autobiography of uh, a person who was uh, with uh, schizophrenia. So, you know, a common man even would really, you know, appreciate reading something like that and see what it is. Okay, now coming back to the question. Uh, on So, when I told you we started with Dr. Deshpande, they have a psychiatric clinic. Okay, at Dr. RML Hospital, uh, Raman Madloya Hospital. So, when patients come, the diagnosis could be very tricky. And when you want to do research, you have to be very clear on your exclusion inclusion criteria. You have to have, you know, preferably a set of questions. So there are what are called as diagnostic manuals. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they version one, two, three, four, and so on. So earlier it was diagnostic manual that we talked about a DSM one, two, three, four. And now, you know, they've, they've moved on. So you have manuals which were set up by psychiatric clinics in the rest of the world, or let's say in America and Europe and so on. So the first thing which was done was they needed to translate this. Okay, the, uh, the manual is one. You have diagnostic interview for genetic studies, DIGS, D-I-G-S, and you have family interview for genetic studies. So DIGS and FIX were first translated from English to Hindi, back translated, validated across, you know, investigators, sites, and so on. And then when the psychiatrist collaborator sees a patient whom he or she thinks is likely to be, you know, labeled as a suffering from schizophrenia, they will administer this questionnaire have a consensus diagnosis with an independent assessor of the questionnaire. That's how you actually start the process. Having said this, we could still, you know, initially we were very ambitious. We told Dr. Deshpande, please give us the six subtypes. Okay, there are six subtypes in schizophrenia. But she said, sorry, I'll never be able to do that because it will be extremely difficult for me to put them in one or the other basket. Maybe they're interchangeable, maybe they're whatever, but so far we never had a subgrouping. So we are just getting the patients who come with all of the symptoms of schizophrenia, which is going to be different from bipolar, which is going to be different from many depressive psychosis. Okay. And even in schizophrenia, you have people who come with hallucinations, people who come with delusions. So all that. So largely you are basing your sample recruitment on 
the clinician's expertise. And that is where having the right clinician is very, very important. And having consensus diagnosis by independent psychiatrists, by independent uh, you know, investigators is also very important. So that cases which are in doubt, you don't consider. So that is how you start with the patient recruitment. When you do want to do family studies, the family interview for genetic studies will allow you to pick all of the family information. They'll say, yeah, you know, grandfather supposed to have had these symptoms, but nobody knows. My sister has, my brother has, but their symptoms are like this. So you know all that information. So it takes a lot, several hours to collect all this information and then you recruit them for your study. That's how you go about and recruit patients for your study. Everything which you do has inclusion and exclusion criteria and several of these things have these questionnaires which you use for ensuring that all of the data that you have collected is utilized for a final call on what the patient's diagnosis is. Yes. And in this context, when you talk about metadata, a lot of the stuff comes in very useful because you're not just using the broad label affected, unaffected, but you look at a lot of additional things. Absolutely. And I think it's it's harder in, in the case of mental health disorder, right? Because you are not like doing a blood test, which will immediately tell you, you know, you are you know, you're a type two diabetes, diabetic or, or you have something, it's a much more harder assessment. So very hard and it really depends on the psychiatrist skill. Okay. Their, their expertise, the way they look at things, their experience, it's extremely hard. And do you think also like, like the mental taboo that a lot of times people don't even talk about these subjects, yeah. maybe we don't get enough research um, available because maybe there are certain families where yeah. they just don't want to be yeah. a part of this as well. Yeah, It is only, you know, when they push to the wall, they go to the doctor. Otherwise, they'll just put it under the carpet and they'll just make sure that you know, nothing is done. Now, I know we can talk about this for, for a long time, but I want to get to uh, some of the other areas that I would like to briefly touch upon, yeah. which is that where do you see the future you know you've you've seen it from many years ago where you started with like you know fragile x and, and a single this thing but you've gone on to a more integrative mind body the iogenomics sort of yes. thing yeah. but you know 10 15, 20 years later where do you see you know this whole genomics uh, the advances where do you see that that going you know in terms of research i mean you can sky is the limit right if, if, you know, the whole world of genome researchers started trying to analyze what is the non-coding sequence in the genome doing, there's got to be a lot. I mean, there's enough and more for people and still we will not have answers, right? With straightforward one-to-one -one kind of effect, interactions, and now what we talk about, you know, three-dimensional interactions and so on. So none of that is going to, so that's going to be forever and ever kind of work, basic research. But if you talk in the context of health or well-being or using it for, let's say, um, diagnosis, prevent, prediction and prevention, single gene disorders again, no issues. There remain a large percentage of diseases which, for which 
we have phenotypic description, but we still don't know the genes. So, but if it is single gene disorder, there's a great chance that as whole exome sequencing is happening, and now we are also capturing regulatory variants, which are big time players because of you know the quantitative changes because of the splicing and other things. Uh, maybe a large majority of the so far unknown single genes could be very well the regulatory kind which is going to come. So that is sure going to be like a sure shot to make up for that remaining 20% or 25% of unknown genetics, but phenotypes known or new phenotypes, which, you know, several clinicians have been coming out with new phenotypes. So the power of next generation sequencing is all there to address that. But I'm afraid, maybe I'm very conservative, but I, I'm not so sure no matter what, no matter, I mean, you know very well. Everybody said whole genome will answer all the questions. No. Yeah. I should start with the Human Genome Project. They said getting the Human Genome Project, everything will be answered. Turned out to be an unexciting GATC stretch, okay? Several pages long. Then you said SNPs will answer, genome-wide associations will answer. Didn't tell us whole exome sequencing. They said, oh, most of it is protein coding, and therefore you find the variants, you should have it didn't answer the questions. Moved on to whole genome sequencing. We are no better than the ABA. But we have generated a lot of data. There are opportunities for you to use huge and new and very sophisticated computational tools to answer the questions. But I'm not so sure that for complex disorders, which are our problem, 60% of them, unless you address both from educating an individual for what healthy living means to kind of make them aware that okay here is genetics it does its part but here is the non-genetic component which is in your hands okay mm -hmm. unless you do that we are not going to be anywhere in terms of addressing the straightforward i mean there's going to be no straightforward answer because unless we have a method of getting or addressing heterogeneity where we are hoping that for every disease if i use my genomics approach i'm convinced but i hope in my lifetime i'll be able to actually prove it that if i'm using the principles of deep phenotyping and again if my clinical collaborators are you know impeccable in their diagnosis or in their deep phenotyping and categorization I know I will have my clean subsets of individuals, which means I will get clean subsets of my signals, which means it could be signaling pathway A in, in, in one group, maybe another signaling pathway, or maybe another pathway which is involved in the disease, because you know there are multiple pathways which contribute to a disease, right? So I would think that if we are able to do that, and if we are able to pick up um, you know, homogeneous subgroups, we have a chance to get genetic insights and together with all of the non-genetic information that today we collect with electronic medical records, I think we may have a chance to come out with some kind of predictions, at least for, you know, all these IBDs and things like that, very doable, okay, very, very doable. But for the ones where there is a larger genetic component and there is an unknown, there is an unknown non-genetic component, like rheumatoid arthritis, 
I, if I were talking to my Ayurveda doctor, I'm very sure I take care of my diet. I mm. take care of my digestion. I'm surely not going to be having knots and, uh, you know, on my knuckles and my bones, uh, joints, right? But, but that's something which they need to appreciate. So if we don't know what the gen non-genetic factors are, it's going to be rather difficult. Having said that, type 2 diabetes, classical example, there are thousands of people who stopped, who have stopped eating sugar, I mean, having sugar for a longest period. And still there's no uh, sugar control. Why? Right? Yeah, why are you having diabetic complications? Okay. Or despite very good control, why diabetic complications? So, you know, we don't understand all of biology. We don't understand the non-genetic factors. So I would say being, you know, it's nice to be, because you have to be positive and optimistic. Technology is growing. Technology will never stop. It will move on. But you as a scientist, if you have that inquisitiveness and you really want to know and you use a little bit of common sense and discretion and say, look, this is the way we need to do. Maybe there will be answers sooner than, sooner than later for all of the complex traits also. But I think there is no substitute to any approach which will enable you to do subgrouping to get to get over with this huge limitation of heterogeneity. So even if you talk about AI, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning today, it'll give you what you're putting in, right? So if you're giving him a mixed bag, okay, you're gonna get that kind of results. So unless you have other methods to address this, I hope omics, personalized omics. When I say omics, I mean more of metabolomics or you know, proteomic signatures from different individuals categorized differently and then try to use them, I think, you know, some answers may be there. But I would still advocate for your your health is in your hands, okay? And if it goes beyond, then of course, you know, there are doctors to help you. But I think people should be very aware and especially in today's context, today's generation, I think we really need to be careful. Absolutely. I think you've touched upon so many, so many interesting pieces. One that, you know, you can look at curiosity, find the genes, but ultimately I think individually, as for us, I think all of us, I think it is understanding that health is in your hands. That is number one. And number two is that, you know, knowledge for the sake of knowledge is, is a pursuit of going from, I guess, ignorance to knowledge to also understanding that you don't know everything in, in many ways, right? Like I think from when you started to where we are today, I think we've uncovered a lot of things, but there's still such a bigger, wider thing that we still don't know. And I think we need to be humble to accept that, you know, yes. that 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 is the case. But the other other interesting thing that you also you also touched upon, which was that um, you know, for for uh, a lot of people, you know, there are newer technologies that are out there. You know, there's AI, there's ML, and all of that. But it all depends on garbage in, garbage out, right? <laughs> in, in in many ways, that you are giving it. Uh, if you don't have good quality phenotype information, then whatever you may do will probably not be enough to give you better insights into the, into the future that is there. So I know that we have already crossed what I initially asked you that we will be doing. So maybe I can uh, move on to the more, um, you know, uh, the rapid fire and the and this and the smaller question that I ask everyone. And I think 
you know, definitely, I think um, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Yeah. Uh, so one is that, you know, what is the secret to healthy aging according to you? Mm. So you healthy. mentioned a little bit, but uh, we, we, you know. Very briefly, I'll say a healthy body in a healthy, what do, we, what do we say? Yeah, healthy body in a healthy mind, right? That's what is the same, right? Yes. So A, I think your mental well-being is the primary okay, for aging. None of us can stop the aging process. But again, come back to diet, whether it is oxidative stress or whether it's, you know, um, whatever, ROS species, whatever is responsible for your brain aging, particularly brain aging I'm talking about, not the rest of it because that's what gets most people down. So I would think that, um, you know, a good mix of exercise, a good mix of meditation, a good mix of healthy eating, okay? And, you know, learn to accept the things the way they are. Don't be, you know, you're, you're basically, I think you just have to have a personality which you will have to develop yourself to kind of, you know, have to accept the things you cannot change, the courage to change the things you can, and the wisdom to know the difference between the two, right? Old saying. But if you really kind of take some of these things, I would believe with um, the, I'm only talking about the aging, which is again a complex phenomena and a related process. So it's to do a lot with, I think, the way we live our lives, the way we eat, you know, all everything, everything that we do. So I would say a holistic approach is the most important to have a very, um, it's all in the mind. You know, it's, the, several of these things are psychosomatic, but of course brain aging is something because you know, you need to change your, if you think that you're going to be a person who's like all the time tense, make sure that you kind of do whatever to break that and to kind of you know change your personality to an extent that you're not going to have unwanted problems later right i mean that's i don't know whether it explains but that's the way i look at it it absolutely does and i think you also you touched upon that you know if you're aware of something then you can change yes you should be able to do that you know it's your health it's you know you have to be able to do that so um so in 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 this case you know uh, lot of people talk about like they want to live to 120 or, or beyond uh is that something that you would want to live uh, to 120 or no i don't even think of tomorrow so forget about 120 years <laughs> no <laughs> no i just i just pray that you know one should just go without any yeah. go but how many are going to be fortunate to have that kind of a death? Time will tell. But otherwise, that's the way one should go. So I would believe that, you know, practice a healthy lifestyle, you know, put in a bit of exercise, put in everything, eat healthy. You know, indulgence is okay. Once in a way, everything is okay. But overall, if you kind of keep, you know, keep, take care of your stuff. And then, of course, with today's uh, medical advances, I think having routine medical checkups will really help because some things which can be prevented should be prevented because you don't want to suffer because, you know, you didn't go for a medical checkup and so on. So I would believe that if there is something which is available, we should be able to, or we should be open to kind of accessing that medical care or medical um, um, uh, diagnosis and 
you know, that's another way to prevent things from getting bad to worse, right? You can prevent it early on. That's that's the way I would look. So, Dr. Kalma, you are an inspiration for a lot of young boys and girls. But if you could go back in time mm -hmm. um, and meet any scientist, who would that be? If I could go back in time and meet any scientist or any anyone that you you like, um, who would that be and why? Oh, you mean of the earlier generations? Anyone? Yeah, it could be anybody. It could be born like a thousand years ago, also. You know what? If you really ask me, I would like to go back and, you know, meet. I mean, if I had an opportunity, I would have liked to know how Charaka Samhita was actually put down. Wow. If you, of course, you know, everybody, like, you know, Barbara McClintock is an inspiration. Oh, um, everybody else, and I'm, I'm just I'm just kind of missing out the names, but everybody is an inspiration. Everybody, uh, Jennifer Doudna, of course, her I've met. You know, everybody is an inspiration, okay? But if you really want to kind of address or find out what really made them think the way they thought or what kind of enabled them to do that kind of science without any of these fancy gadgets. They knew everything just by the pulse, right? That was that was their diagnostic tool. So I think that observational science, I think is something which I'd really, you know, I would, I would, I'd really like to know how they made these observations. You know, that the Sushruta Samhita, which talks about surgery, that's okay because you're opening, you're seeing things. But for the physician, physical health concept or the, you know, the mm -hmm. physician's concept or either why it's concept, which is based on just all this information on the pulse and what you eat and the features, what you have, you know, everything based on that only they determine your prakriti or your constitution, right? And based on that, they tell you do's and don'ts. They tell you food to eat, not to eat. So how did they decide all this? You know, like, how many thousands of people did they observe to come to this? Mm -hmm. Or were there some mathematics? I don't know. You know, I mean, I actually don't know. What did they have to kind of come to these conclusions? Which I'm sure, if not today, sooner than later, we will have scientific validation of all of those principles. It's taking time because we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough things in place, right? But I'm sure we will have all of them validated beautifully. Absolutely. I mean, I've gone to, uh, I remember when I had a, a back injury, I, I went to an Ayurveda, uh, you know, hospital for about two weeks. Okay. And I was a complete convert, right? Like, it, you could see the actual, like, you saw the doctors, what they were doing. It was, yeah. now they've become more, they started to integrate a lot of the, uh, the newer modern medicine as well. But I think it, the base level, what they are using is still what was there many, many thousands of years ago. And and it it works, it works for so many people that, uh, you know, I think if we could just add to that, that yeah. sea of knowledge, I think it'll be great. That would be great. Like, you know, I'm just, before you start, I just want to, since you talk about that, Panchakarma, you know, a rheumatoid arthritis patient for 20 years, no, you know, he's like already debilitated, completely immobile. They always go to a Panchakarma clinic because all that happens is their gut cleansing and repopulation. Okay, where did they know the science? Yeah. And now we are doing that. We, we're doing it as a microbiome. Um, as a, you know, and, and getting in the probiotics. But ultimately, I think that... If Probi you can... Probiotics is one. But fecal microbial transplantation is right. a big time now. But you need to have a good donor who keeps his 
gut microbiome healthy and so on. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I know you've already recommended one book, which was, uh, uh, but is there any other book that you can recommend? Oh, okay. Okay. That I just said, by the way, you know, by way of conversation, that one. No, you know, um, in, in nonfiction, okay, there are so many nice books. So uh, Stephen Hall's Invisible Frontiers, if kids wanted to read what happened in the first generation genetic engineering, that. And now on the other end of the spectrum is the code breaker, mm -hmm. which, you know, uh, Isaacson's, right? Ultra Isaacson's, yeah. Yeah, so which is all of Jennifer Dudna and the thing. The important part there is not just the science. The important part there is the individuals, the personalities, their temperaments, you know, all that. So I think that is so important for students of science to understand. That is not just, you know, that, okay, they did that, they got this, and, and that's it. But I think these books, they kind of really put that aspect of people and their science and all of that which happened in that ecosystem. So first generation would be that, and now would be that. Then, of course, all of, uh, you know, the new ones, whichever, whatever, whether you talk about populations, then you talk about Hara, you, know, you talk about uh, Siddharth Mukherjee for other kinds of interesting things. I mean, there are many, many books, but but I would say, you know, if my recommendation is there, I would say pick up any book that you can lay your hands on and read, yeah. okay? Try to pick up whatever information that you think is interesting from there. So ideally, it should not be a book or two books, but it should be just pick up any book and be an avid reader. Absolutely. I think you never know. when. Once you start, that's when you can go to the next level. So I think pick the first book is, is absolutely fantastic advice. So what would you, what kind of advice would you give to anyone who's pursuing a, you know, a, a, a career in science, right? Um, there is obviously a lot that is happening, but um, you know, what is that one thing that has kept you going from starting from one thing to pretty much covering a large part of you know, what you have been uh, able to accomplish. But if someone started today, um, what would you tell them would be a, you know, important trait or, or something that they should, should, should be thinking is, is satisfying from a career in science? Yeah, okay. You know, in today's context, with funding being a limitation, things probably would be very different. So maybe unlike our times, where we had so much freedom to pursue whatever, you know, it is a purely passionate pursuit of science. And you picked up diseases because, you know, because you needed kids not to fight amongst themselves. So that's that was a different thing altogether. But everything added to the beautiful overall outcome. So if today they had to do science, if they did, if they dabble their hands in multiple things, later in their stage is okay. But early on, maybe I would say that they should be more focused, okay? And not be over ambitious. Like say, for example, you know, they should, you know, I always was told by my mentor, Professor Rao, he said, don't tell the world about the labor pain, show them the baby, okay? So what you need to do is stop complaining Pick what you want to do, do a very systematic one, be honest, be sincere, because there is no substitute to sincere hard work. There is no substitute to, you know, um, a seriousness or serious pursuit. You're not just doing it because you wanted to two papers. So I would say that, you know, give your 200% because science is so exciting because you don't know every day is new. You don't know what tomorrow in the lab brings for you. 
but you have to have your eyes and ears open. So it's so exciting. But I would say if you're comparing money on one hand and, you know, uh, satisfaction and sense of achievement on the other, then obviously science will go on the second hand. Okay. So it depends what kids are looking for, because most of the times for us, we see that students don't come into the science, especially boys, because there's no money. Okay. But for students who are still interested in the pursuit of science, I'll say, just give you a 200%. Be sincere in what you're doing and go systematic considering limitations of funding and other things. You have to be very serious and not plan your work well. And uh, if you if you give your 200%, the doors will open up. You know? And it's not that you want to read something. You just have to go along with the flow, but ask the right questions. And what you do is not important. How you do is important. That's about what I would tell youngsters. I, I love that, that it's not what you do, it's how you do. I think it's such such great advice for everyone that it's it's not just for the, I think the young scientists, but so it is for everyone. And I think if it's just how all of us did that, we would all be, I think the world would be a happier and a better place. So no, This is what my mentor always said, you know, I loved him for that. He's so great. I mean, these are really things that he told us day after day. So it just gets instilled and I hope it passes on. I know I can ask, I, I know I have a lot of questions to ask, but I think we've gone to almost two hours. So uh, last, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> almost, not yet there. So yeah. uh, what is uh, one last question? Are you a morning person or an evening person, night person? When are you most productive? Okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not waking up at four or four o'clock to do my work, but I get up in the morning, but that's my purely personal time. Okay. For myself, that's the only time. The rest of the day, I would say, all day is productive, except that when you're firefighting, then you work, you tend to work late and lose out on sleep, which I really would advise anybody against. But so to answer, it's like I, I'm not a not a late person. Surely I don't kind of sit through and through. But if work demands, which is happening, then of course. And your favorite form of exercise? Yoga. Yoga. And of course, combined with you know meditation. So that's so you're doing all the right things, you know, getting the, the I, I, I hope I hope so. Time will tell Anu. We try our best, right? Don't worry about the results, you do your part. Thank you so much, Dr. Telma. It has been an absolute pleasure. I think we probably this must have been, you know, if if you I know that you have a lot of work to be done, so otherwise we would have continued the conversation um hour and a half i think or maybe sorry about that that's why not, no i'm i'm happy i would have taken it to three hours but i know you have work to do so i'm not going to take it longer than that so i want to thank you it has been an absolute honor and pleasure and maybe we'll save a second session for for discussing all the things i did not get a chance to ask you <laughs> but can i just ask you one question sure. before i leave? absolutely absolutely in your journey, you know, having moved and taken that bold step of, you know, kind of doing whatever, um, are you, uh, how, how do you feel? I mean, are you satisfied or you think your uh, road is too long to go still or what is it like? How does it feel? Or what do you think? I, I enjoy, I've enjoyed it. And, and I tell people that, you know, I think in some ways, 
you know, I came from a family of science, right? My dad was a professor. So there is there is a little bit of that, uh, you know, genetic material that was passed on to me in some ways. But I think it is also the, that what you do can impact people. And I think, you know, for me, that pursuit itself is great. You know, it's obviously not an easy journey. I think it would have been, it's far easier to do some of the other things. But I think what we can do with science is something that is, I think, a lot more satisfying. So like you were saying, the money and the science, I, I mean, and the what you get from satisfaction, I think, you know, it's the same thing. It is just that we are pursuing it in a in a okay. different environment. But but I totally think that, you know, I'm quite excited about this whole, you know, area of genomics. And I when I started 23 years ago, I tell that at that point, it was just a exercise in intellectual curiosity. But uh, I think now it has become more, uh, you know, it's a passion and it's something that I, I'm quite happy that I took that decision and not and did not do something that was... Absolutely. Yeah, at least, you know, you're able to do something, give back something to the society. Translation. All of us can't do translation, right? Or we can't really kind of reach there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So thank you again, once again. And with that, uh, we've closed the 47th episode. Uh, you know, this whole genomics gupshit started as, a, you know, just a pursuit of saying, you know, we all are doing exciting things, but, you know, can a common person understand what we are doing, right? And and then uh, thank you so much. I think you took a time to explain a lot of complex topics in very, very simple terms. And uh, for that, you know, very, very thankful. And thank you for all the great work you've done. I think you won't have, you know, Today's a lot of uh, what is happening in the world of genomics, I think, would have been happening. And it's not been easy to do science in India. I know that also. So so thank you for everything that you uh, Thank you very much, Anu. And I wish you a fantastic future. Okay. And really a very, very successful personalized medicine coming to the you know common man. Yeah. Wish you lots of success in your pursuit. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Bye-bye.